Good morning. My name is Dan. I'm a leader here at Grace Fellowship Church, and I'm excited to open up Mark chapter 15 with you today. So take a moment and go there. We're going to be in verse 21. We've been talking a lot about a lot about a trial lately, and I don't mean that in a generic way, like life's trials. I mean we've been talking about an actual trial, and we've been talking a lot about the man that is on trial and that man is Jesus and we've been talking about the the sinful men that have put him on trial and all the while we've been kind of watching but I just want to take a minute and I want to put us on the other side of the table so I want you to take a moment and I want you to imagine that you're the one in the courtroom so just go there because that's hard. I've never even watched a court trial. I've, this is hard for me to really get into. So I want you to imagine that you're in a courtroom, and I want you to imagine that you're the one on trial, and it looks really bad. So if you've ever gotten in trouble for something, I want you to magnify that by roughly a 1,000. I want you to imagine that there's a mountain of evidence against you and it just piles up. And all of it's true. All of it's true this time. And the gavel comes down and it says guilty. And the sentence is death. Your life is about to end. And the crowd cheers because they can't wait to watch. But then, the judge stands up and he steps down from his platform and he unlocks your handcuffs and he slides them onto his own wrists and he is led away to die instead of you. That doesn't seem quite fair, does it? That seems unbelievable. Who would die to spare a criminal? Today we're going to read a story like that. Except in this one, the stakes are a lot higher and this story is actually true. It's the story of Jesus, the King of all kings, and He's on a mission and His mission is to exonerate the people who kill Him. Jesus is that judge in the story I just made up. And today his mission is about to be complete. Today he's led off to die. It's a story that isn't new. If you've gone to church ever, you've probably heard this story at least once. If you've read your Bible, somebody's handed you a Bible, this is probably one of the first stories they told you to read. So this is a story that we can kind of be numb to. And so we just sang, Oh, to see the dawn of that day. Today, I want us to see that dawn. My goal is that this story should should shock us, it should surprise us, it should in a way terrify us, but it's something we should never be ashamed of. And it's something that should always be fresh. So let's pray for, let's pray for fresh eyes and we're going to look at Mark 15 together. Let me pray. Dear God, this is a story about you 
and satisfying the demands, paying the bill that we cannot afford. Lord, would you help us to recall, if we are believers, would you help us to recall those former times when we knew not of you? And Lord, if, if anyone here is unknowing of you, would you help them to see you in a new light? Would you help them to be changed? Amen. We're going to walk through two, uh, two points on the outline here. First, we're going to look at suffering and sacrifice. And then we're going to look at the new kingdom coming. Because all this is so that the new kingdom that Christ is promising would actually come. I'm going to read verses 21 through 37, and we're going to get right to it. And they, that is the crowd, compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from that cross that we might see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. I want you to I want to walk you through a few history lessons as we're reading this, because this these verses fly by. We cover the death of Jesus in 16 verses, and a lot happens. And so I want to walk you through the history and some of the cultural understandings of what's going on so that we can, we can fully see what's exactly happening here. So Jesus is taken to Golgotha, which they translate as the place of the skull. There's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of historical background as to why it's called that. But one of the most obvious reasons is because this this hill was steep and it was round and it was shaped like the top half of the human skull. It was just high, round. And so it was very visible. And wouldn't that be a great place if you wanted to publicly kill someone to do it? You're going to see it from a while around. But there's more to it than that. There's a Christian historian... I really like named Roger de Sato. He was an atheist, and then he became a Christian historian. And he, he describes it this way as they crucify him. They say, Jesus would have been facing west toward the wall of Jerusalem if he would have been on that hill. 
And so just above the wall, he would have seen the north side of the altar and the temple entrance, if you're familiar with Jewish history. And so, in other words, Jesus, as they drive the nails in and they hoist him up, he's facing the temple. The only method by which holy men could draw near to God. Just tuck that in. We're going to come back to it a little later. I want to make a few more historical connections. Because, as you guys know, if you guys were here last week and you're reading, Jesus is nearly dead before he even gets here. The amount of beating, suffering he, he endures. He actually needs help carrying his cross. It's mentioned here. So another, thing's happen, another thing happens, he's offered wine and myrrh, but he doesn't take it. And I want to explain that. One commentator said this, wine was designed to dull pain, as wine does. And this is done to keep Jesus from having to endure the cross with full consciousness. This is a common practice for a criminal. It was actually a courtesy. You're about to die. We're going to make it a little easier for you. But instead, Jesus chooses to be fully alert as the nails go through his hands. He doesn't take the wine. I'll get to that a little bit later, but for now, here's what he's conscious for. So here's what he takes in fully alert. They take all of his belongings in verse 24. They mock his kingship in verse 27 by writing the king of the Jews above the cross he hangs on. You can imagine on a Passover weekend what that would look like. He's next to thieves in verse 27, one on his right, one on his left. He's surrounded, in a sense, by criminals. And they continue to mock him in verse, verses 29 and 32. They, they hiss and they, they clap and they say, save yourself and we'll believe. And you know they won't. But that's what they say. And this is the kind of mockery that I think would be the last thing an innocent person would want to hear. I'd probably want to take the wine, wouldn't you? I wouldn't want to hear that. But here's what's happening. Here's why I think Jesus doesn't take the wine. Jesus is embracing what his people should have become. Jesus is taking on, fully alert, what should be the fate of his people. Let me explain that with a little bit of history. See, all throughout the Old Testament, if you've ever read it, you've heard of uh, people called Israel, and those are God's people, those are the Jews. And you might know, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, that these people are totally unfaithful to God pretty much all the time. And God punishes them. He says, I'm going to take away your land. I'm going to promise land to you. You're unfaithful. I'm going to take it away. And listen, as that happens in the Old Testament, what the author of the Old Testament book of Lamentations, what he says to Israel, this is from the book of Lamentations, about Jerusalem, about God's people. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and they wagged their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem, saying, Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty? The joy of all the earth? See, Jesus, the King of the Jews, 
is taking the prophecy that belongs to his own people. He's taken it from him. And this goes on for three hours. Just like that. And it's high noon now. We read, and then it grows dark. And then for three more hours, it stays that way. So just imagine fully alert for six hours going through what I just said. And Jesus' next words, after all that, give us a window into what's happening because it, it goes dark during high noon. Some people dismiss this as, oh, it's just an eclipse or something. No, gross dark. Something big is happening. And Jesus cries out this, this phrase, Eloi, Eloi. And it's translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's going on here is actually something a lot more worse than anything I just said. And it takes place almost invisibly. You and I can't really see it, but if we look beneath the surface, I want to do my best to help you see. Historian Donald McLeod says this about verse 34, about this phrase that Jesus cries. He says, Jesus cries out in Aramaic, that's the language, but he doesn't use the greatest of all the Aramaic words, Abba, or Father. When Jesus calls out to God, he doesn't say Father. And he's been doing that a lot. In fact, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, just a bit of time earlier, when Jesus was praying right before he was arrested, he used the word Abba. It's in Mark 14, it's one chapter ago, but not here. Like Abraham and Isaac going up to Mount Moriah, that's in Genesis, Jesus and God have gone up to Golgotha together. But when Jesus gets there, Abba is not there. His father, his daddy is not there. Only Eloi is there which means God Almighty, God Holy. And now Jesus is before God, not as, as His Son, but as the sin of the world. Now I want you to fix your eyes back on that temple curtain with me. Jesus' eyes are probably starting to blur at this point. I would imagine He can still see the temple in the distance. Just think about that curtain. That's what prevents and just anybody from going in and communing with the Lord. That was for the holiest of priests. Fix your eyes back on that curtain with me. Every crooked priest that went into that temple, every sacrifice throughout history, could you imagine the mountain of animals that was killed in there to atone for sin? Every debt that means that temple still has to be there? At this very moment, those debts are being paid invisibly. All of Israel's sin, even as they're clapping and hissing. All of your sin and mine. But no one in the crowd even sees. Mark didn't see. He sees it now. What do they see? They actually think that Jesus is calling Elijah when he says this. 
And I want to take just a few minutes and explain this because this is actually a portion of Jesus' suffering that I never understood before. I never understood why this was in here. So I did a bunch of homework. When Jesus cried out, Eloi, and that's, by the way, why I think Mark includes the original statement so that you can you yourself can hear the word Eloi, Jesus is definitely short of breath at this time, probably. And he's probably struggling to speak, which is why all of his phrases are short. If you're in the crowd, you might hear the word Eli, not Eloi. But only if you're listening for it. And God's people were. And here's why. Here's why all this is happening. I'm going to go back to the Old Testament for a minute. Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament. And he preached the truth mightily. But Israel didn't care and they let him have it. And long after he went to be with the Lord, it was prophesied that he would come back and then would come the day of the Lord. That's in a book called Malachi. And all I want you to know is this. That, that's what was prophesied, the day of the Lord. But Israel misinterpreted that as a day not of salvation from themselves, but as a promise of political, earthly vindication against their enemies. And if you've been following Jesus' teaching during this series, all that should sound really familiar. Because the same song is playing again, one last time. Once again, a man comes speaking truth, but God's people don't know him and they let him have it. And this time it's God. And they put him on a cross. But then they hear that name, or at least they think they hear that name, Elijah. And they realize, maybe our vindication is coming after all. So here's what they do to Jesus in verse 36 because they're listening for the wrong thing. They offer him sour wine. And that's different from the last wine offering, because this stuff is designed to keep you awake. You can only imagine how much it would have hurt to drink this after six hours. What they want to do by doing this is they want to prolong Jesus' pain for one last shot at their revolution. The world blows it all the way to the end. And these are the last words that Jesus hears. They think he's someone else. Because in his final moment, his father says nothing. These are the last things that Jesus hears. There's no nod from heaven that everything is going to be okay. Again, Donald McLeod says this about the moment. Jesus stood where none had stood before or since, enduring at one tiny point in space and time all that sin deserved. Never before had anything come between him and his father, but now the sin of the whole world had come between them. 
and he is caught in the dreadful vortex of the curse. It was not that he bore some vague relation to sinners. He was one of them, numbered with transgressors on his left and right. No, he was all of them. No, he, he became sin. And he had no advocate. And the gavel came down. He had to bear all. And God would not and could not spare him until the ransom was paid in full. And so Jesus hangs there in the dark. No words from the Father that he knew throughout eternity. Facing the temple as the curtain stays and he finally cries out one more and then once more and then he dies. But what happens next tells us, even on this dark day, that his mission was a complete success. Let's move on to the next section. The new kingdom comes. I'm going to read verses 38 through 47. Look for the hope. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of the preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should already have died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapping him in the linen shroud, he laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Pretty encouraging, right? Oh, <laughs> where's the hope? There's no hope on the surface. Not really. But there are so many good things happening here. This could actually be a whole other sermon. But instead, it's going to be like 10 minutes. So I want to take a few minutes. I'm going to point out the biggest things that are happening. First, the temple curtain tears from top to bottom. And this was a curtain that would have been about 60 feet high. And so I'm just going to say this. When something that tall tears that way, the five-foot five people at the bottom didn't do it. <laughs> and there's symbolism here. Because you know right after this, the Jewish people got together and we got to fix this thing. There's symbolism here. And the symbolism is this. From God down, it means anybody can come in now. No priest, no pope, just walk in. That's amazing. That could be a whole sermon. 
Second, this is, and this is the climax of the entire book, I think. We get our very first testimony from somebody who walks through the torn curtain, and it's the guy who put the nails in. The Roman centurion of all people who had stood facing Jesus during the crucifixion is the first one to put it together. He says, truly this man was the Son of God. Author Tim Challies illustrates this pretty well. He says, a man who watched Jesus be beaten, who watched his soldiers mock and abuse him, and who probably enjoyed every minute of it, suddenly cries out in terror, realizing that he's killed an innocent man. His cry of terror is also a confession of faith as he says that Jesus is the Son of God. I am certain that this story served as a great encouragement to many people in the early church. Though many of them carried the guilt for having killed the Lord, the realization that God could save even those who held the nails would have proven that he is a God of forgiveness. You get that? If that guy can walk in, who can't? Third, Joseph of Arimathea takes courage. Verse 43, this guy's a respected member of the council. He has a lot of status. He has a lot of money. And you have to remember that Jesus is not on coffee mugs at this point. Jesus is a dead criminal. And Joseph puts a lot on the line by identifying with that. But he goes to Pilate. And he asks for the body. And he spends a lot of money to put him in a pretty extravagant tomb. He puts a lot on the line here. He takes courage. Fourth, Pilate is surprised at the speed of Jesus' death. Let me explain this. Verse 44 it's just a sign that sometimes hard hearts just stay hard. After all that terrible suffering I described, this actually turns out to be a short death, crucifixion-wise. The reaction from Pilate suggests that he would likely regard Jesus as an innocent man who just kind of died quickly, forgettable, likely not the king of some impending revolution. If your guy died, your mission ended. That's how it worked. But Pilate would be wrong. Lastly, women are some of the most key players. This is this is an amazing sign of the new kingdom, because of the what you would, if if you know the status of women at this time, that they would be around, that they'd be watching, that they, that Mark would spend ink telling us how faithful these women are. I could go more into that, but I'm actually going to focus on that next week because that's when they're the main characters. But for now, they witness. They see where he's laid. Friends, at this point, Jesus is in the ground. That's where our story ends. But Mark's hope is jumping off the pages, and I hope you see that. He himself now, as he writes this, his own sins paid for, he looks back and he sees this dark day for what it really is. It's victory. So I hope you see the main point, because it's the main point of the whole book of Mark. Jesus, God's King, 
suffers and dies so that those who repent and believe can join his kingdom. Jesus suffers and dies so those who repent and believe can join his kingdom. And I hope you see the connections to the gospel because this is pretty much the gospel. God abandons Jesus that he might welcome his enemies. The love and forgiveness there. The curtain is torn so all nations are welcomed in. It's not just about Israel anymore. And a Roman centurion is the first to confess Jesus as the Son of God. Here's how the original readers would have applied this back in the day. They would have read this and they would have put the scroll down and they would have said the old kingdom is gone and the new is here. And that means a lot of cultural change. This would have been hard. Because the animal sacrifices, the constant guilt of sin, all of those are gone. More, no more goats, no more lambs, no more cows. Keep them. All that fell on Jesus. And the new kingdom was disruptive, so the same way Jesus lived, full of grace and truth, and yet suffering for that, that would be their mission too. That's how the readers would have interpreted it. We've got to live like this guy. This is different. So here's a few applications for you, Grace Fellowship Church. Two. One of them is repent and believe. Pretty simple, right? Well, short, not simple. If you're not a Christian, if you're still trying to figure out if you are or not, I want you to take a cue from the Roman centurion. I want you to look on Jesus, not the Jesus you made up or the one that was wrongly taught to you when you were a kid. Because you might have seen him as a taskmaster or the dad who is never happy with you. Maybe you saw him as some long-haired hippie. And what he's here to do is he wants nice people to be nice to each other. Maybe that's who you believe Jesus to be. That's not the Jesus the Bible talks about. Now look at the cross and see someone who, who, yes, saw people as hopelessly in debt, was not pleased with their works, but then paid the bill with his life. So he's perfectly holy. He's without sin. But yet, he takes it on. He's full of grace for the sake of people who had no hope otherwise. Allow that Jesus to change your life. Get to know him. And if you are a Christian, I would actually say the same thing applies. But I want to actually add a caution. There's a danger when you read a story like this again and again and again, and you stop thinking about what it means. Because every time you sin, and you're going to do that, and you probably did on the way here, every time you do that, you deny Jesus. You push away from God. You say, I don't need the cross. And if you get comfortable with that, 
this a point where you read a passage and it just kind of spread over your head? Your sin will no longer horrify you. You'll be offended by the cross for all the wrong reasons. And you're probably going to stop turning to Jesus altogether. So in other words, you're a Christian now. And you might look a lot more moral than that centurion because you don't have blood on your hands. Or you might go to a really good church. Or you might have a really godly spouse. But please, remind yourself daily of your need for Jesus. And ask people to remind you. And if you go to a good church, don't worry. They're going to tell you. Don't go numb. Second application is love the torn curtain. Because speaking of that centurion, like when you really consider that guy, like this guy that probably enjoyed the beatings and had the blood on his hands as he cried out, do you honestly believe that a guy like that can just confess and be forgiven? What if that guy walked in here? Some ex-con. Blood on his hands and he's tattooed up. And he comes in here with blood on his hands and he's broken over his past. And he's scary. You going to take communion next to him? Would you sit next to that person? Another way of asking that is, is the blood of Christ enough for him? Yeah, I would say so. Because when that curtain tears, it means anybody, anybody, anybody can see God. And there's an implication there for the church. The implication is that the church is going to look less like an exclusive professional club and it's actually going to look a little bit more like Walmart. How about you? But sometimes I go to Target so I don't have to go to Walmart. There's no cover charge. There's no dress code. It's weak people who get to see God. That's because of that table right there. That's why we're here. And that right there, communion, is the most extravagant feast that you're ever going to have here on earth. It's the best meal you get. I mean, don't get me wrong. The bread and the juice, they don't do anything. They're not magic. In fact, they probably came from Walmart. But what makes this extravagant is that God gave his life to buy you back. The judge left the bench, went to prison instead of you. So his body was broken and his blood was spilled. And there's really no need to transition to communion. So let's just get right to it. If you believe that the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus is enough, then come. And if you do not, stay. Let's pray together.
dear God, we, we could not pay. And you gladly paid. You suffered on our behalf. And we get to take that to the world. Would you help us to do that? Amen.